Young Adults Minister, I encourage you to keep the Bible open uh, to that passage in Hebrews chapter 8 because it is one of those passages we're going to be looking at quite a few verses specifically. So it would be good to have it open in front of you as we go through this morning. At the start of the service, Andrew mentioned our new teaching series is starting today called The Heart of Life, asking how can we have God at the centre of our lives in all parts of our life? How can God be the centre? And in this series, we're going to be practically looking at how we live, you know, and so what do we do to ensure that God is at the centre of our lives? And we'll most importantly, I think, be asking why we do the things that we do uh, and whether we should be doing some things differently uh, or doing some new things. So that's what we've got in the coming weeks. Uh, relationships will be a massive theme in this particular series. Uh, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other and our relationship with the natural world around us. Now this makes sense that relationships would be a big theme because this is God's book, it's the Bible and God is very much on about good relationships. Um, now to ha- and Andrew also mentioned that to help us examine the heart of life, we'll be focusing on the book of Leviticus. Now those of you who are very observant will go, but uh, 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 the Bible reading was from the book of Hebrews. That's in the New Testament. People love the book of Hebrews. Uh, and you're correct, well done you. A uh, bit teacher's petty of you to come up with that. But uh, I'll explain why that's the case in a minute. It'll, it'll all come together as we go on. But the majority of the series will be focusing on the book of Leviticus. And so, yeah, if you have read it, okay, what are your expectations of the series if you've read it? Two possibilities. One, this, this series is going to be controversial or this series is going to be boring. Possibly a combination of both. Uh, so uh, it is, yeah, it is, as Andrew said, it is not the most popular part of the Bible. It is the least popular. Um, and if you've tried to read the Bible from start to finish, you know, sometimes people do, oh, I'm going to start at the beginning, I'm going to read all the way through, and usually Leviticus is the point where people give up. <laughs> you know, and it's only the third book, so you're giving up pretty early, but that's, that's the state that Leviticus is. It's a tough one. In this book, Leviticus, you will find a large amount of religious ceremonies for a large variety of different occasions. For example, there are ceremonies to help you ask God for forgiveness. So you've done something wrong, you've sinned, you're sorry for it, you want God to forgive you, there's a ceremony, well, number of ceremonies for you to do that. Uh, there are ceremonies that are like safety procedures for when you're sick. So you've got a rash or some other sort of disease going on, there's ceremonies to help you uh, get better and to help you not infect other people. There are ceremonies for your property. If your house has got mould in it, there's a ceremony for that and dealing with the mould. Uh, there are ceremonies to help the community provide for the poor that, uh, in the community, the poor people in the community. And, and there's a variety of other um, ceremonies and occasions as well. All these ceremonies are in one way or another, about relationships. And they're also about having God at the centre of all those relationships. The instruction, here's the way the ceremonies worked. They were given by God to Moses, who was the leader of the people of Israel at that particular time in history. And then the nation was centred around a tent called the tabernacle, uh, represented here uh, by this tent. Uh, it is not a scale model. Um, of the tent. <laughs> Somebody's tried to do it. This is a modern attempt to sort of uh, do a, uh, a, 
a scale model of the, the Old Testament tabernacle. And so the tabernacle stood at the center of everything for the people of Israel, both literally and figuratively. So literally it was at the center of the camp and it was at the middle of where everyone lived, but figuratively because it was the center of everyone's identity. The tabernacle represented, it was a bit like heaven, a bit like God's home, you know, that this is where God lived. Now, they didn't believe that like God was restricted to that, like all-powerful be being is everywhere all the time, but that this tent represented God being with his people, being in relationship with his people. And so all the ceremonies that took place were to be done in and around the tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews described it like this in the second part of chapter 8, verse 5. It says, This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. Then he quotes God. Um, God said to Moses, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now in this series, we will at times do a fair bit of Israelite history, right? So this reference here is a reference to when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 20. Um, God gives his people ten spiritual and moral laws for them to follow. And let me just summarize for you the first four. First one, God is God. There's no other gods, just him. Second, don't have any idols. Do not worship anything except God. Don't worship anything you've made. Don't worship other people, just God. Three, do not misuse God's name. And the fourth is once a week, have a day of rest called a Sabbath where you take time to remember everything that God has done. So just from the first four commandments, we can see it's pretty clear what the people of Israel are to be about. They are to be about God and having God at the centre of everything that they do. He's to be at the heart of what they do and of what they say and of what they think. So that's why the tabernacle representing God's presence, was at the centre of the camp. And that's why all the ceremonies happened around there, keeping, it, keeping the theme very consistent for the people. And so in the series, we're calling it the heart of life because we're asking, how can we do the same thing today? How can we have God at the heart of our lives, both as individuals and as groups of people? And we reckon that the book of Leviticus is going to be really useful in giving us some ideas and some insights into how to do that. Having said that, if you're new to Christianity, you know, if you haven't read the Bible, you're thinking, oh, I, might, I might read the Bible, might do some investigation, my recommendation is that you don't start with Leviticus. Just don't do it. It's just not a recommendation. Uh, I would recommend that eventually you read it, but you might like to read it maybe second last or last out of all the other books. Uh, <laughs> and let me give you a few reasons for that being the case. I mean, the Bible is an ancient book. All of it's pretty old. But Leviticus just has that ancient vibe more than most, I think. Uh, it's 3,000 years old, right? And so the difference in culture between us here in 21st century Melbourne and 3,000 years ago, the people of Israel lost in the wilderness, there's big cultural differences. And so often when you read, and it's very much just about like the day-to-day -day sort of culture that they're going on about. And so there's just not a lot that lines up. And, and I'll be honest with you, it's just weird. A lot of the stuff in this, you go, whoa, what, what's going on here? What, what sort of lives do these people live? Um, and so you do some research, it starts to make sense, but without the research, the, the, cult, the, you know, the time gap is big and it's a challenge for us. Also, at times, and just get ready for this, it can come across as sexist 
racist, violent, and harsh towards minorities, including, but not limited to, sick people, disabled people, and hippies. Now, again, some research might change your mind on this, right? You might, you'll delve into it and you go, actually, I don't think it is racist. But initially, when you first read it, I would be shocked if you didn't pull the sort of face, like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Really? You know, like, this is, there's a few moments like that. Uh, we're not going to read every chapter in this series, but even the bits that we've picked, there will be some moments when somebody's reading the Bible up here at the front of church where you'll go, oh, wow, <laughs> that's really in there. Uh, so um, it's also repetitive. Okay, So there are detailed, pedantic descriptions of lots of religious ceremonies. I've been reading a couple of chapters a day of Leviticus over the last few weeks. You don't get a whole lot of memory verses that you can sort of write down and you know sort of take to heart a lot of it is just pedantic details about the ceremonies that uh, are listed in there so it can read a little bit like a manual you know what a manual is you know when you get a new device and there's that book that you instantly chuck out and never read because it's too detailed and boring <laughs> yeah well it can come across a bit like a manual um, also and this is more of an Aussie thing I think but it might feel for you, and this will depend a bit on your background, it might feel too religious. Okay, so, um, you know, I remember at high school, I wasn't, wasn't particularly a follower of Jesus in high school, but I believed God existed. And so I mentioned this to a friend in a conversation, and he was okay with me believing in God, but he said, Kirk, you're not religious, are you? You know, it's okay, that's okay, but you're not religious, are you? Like, because being religious in Australia is bad. Like, believing something's okay, but being religious is bad. Um, and we've sort of taken that on, I think, you know, like Christians in Australia. So we like to refer to our beliefs as a relationship with God rather than as religion, because religion seems like a dirty word and relationship seems pretty groovy. And so, um, that, and that's fair enough. You know, in one way, it is a relationship, you know, and, and that's a correct way to do it. But we do sometimes treat religion as a dirty word and then the things that we think go with religion we sort of say oh maybe they're bad as well um, but it's not well, like you know at the very basis religion just means a certain type of belief which is christianity is that christianity is a religion if we look at it from that way but we have this cultural baggage that sort of puts us off a little bit and so that's that's a challenge we're going to have to overcome to sort of be more positive about the religious sort of things um, that we read in Leviticus. But it might make you uncomfortable. So all these challenges with reading the book uh, leave us as Christians with a challenge, and that is, okay, so we claim that the Bible is God's word, all of it, right? So not just bits of it, not just the bits we like, but all of it is God's word. So we can't just ignore Leviticus completely. It's not, not allowed. What do we do with this book? And what do we do with a couple of the other Old Testament books that are, have similar issues? What I'd like to do now is to do a bit of a demonstration as to how to read the Old Testament as a Christian. And of all the New Testament books, Hebrews, I would say, is the most helpful and the most detailed when it comes to teaching you how to read the Old Testament from a Christian New Testament point of view. Um, so I'm going to do a bit of a timeline here. Uh, I'm going to represent it physically. So where, where you're all sitting and where I'm standing, this represents... Uh, the current day. Okay, this is 21st century. We're all living in this moment. So this represents us here. And then this Bible here represent. It's open to the Book of Leviticus, right? So this is representing approximately 3,000 years ago 
where the book of Leviticus was written and where all these ceremonies that we're going to read about happened. There's a bit of a timeline there for you. Um, now, ceremonies were given to people by God and they usually involved a priest. So just to visually represent this, can I have a, a volunteer just to come up and, and be the priest for us? And I, you don't have to act in any way. What's your name, young man? Yeah. Tim, Tim, can you come up and help me out, please? <laughs> you can blame all them for this, all right? <laughs> okay, can you, Tim, can you stand next to the Bible? Um, so you're representing uh, the priests. So one, one person, but he's representing all the priests, including the high priest um, you know, involved. So uh, the priests were religious leaders. And in the ceremonies that involved sacrifices, and some of them did, often a lamb represented here by this child's toy. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> So the priests were the ones who handled the sacrifice and who led the ceremonies. Okay? Now, then, at one point in history, Jesus came along. Jesus represented by this cross. And he comes in between now and then. Uh, and uh, at this point in history, I don't think I've got the scale exactly right, but, you know, go with me. So um, his mum was a human, but his father was God. So he's God born in human form. And he changed the world in amazing ways. He was a religious leader too uh, and he changed the world significantly through that leadership and through his death and his resurrection as well. So in his life, death and resurrection, what Jesus did was effectively become both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. So the book of Hebrews at the end of chapter 7, just before our reading today, is talking about Jesus and says this, such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So in Old Testament times, when we had sinned, and everyone does that at least once a week, right? So just everyone needs to do this. We would bring a sacrifice to the priest. The priest would handle the ceremony on our behalf. But when we fast forward to our time and we look back through the Jesus window, the sacrifice has already been made and the priest is permanent because of Jesus. So Tim, to represent that, can you please go back to your seat and I'll take the sacrifice and pop it out of sight. Just to indicate that we don't need a priest to be between us and God to sort of be to the mediator anymore and we have a permanent sacrifice we don't need to keep bringing sacrifices and so the question then is like okay well if we're in this section here does that mean that the Old Testament is outdated you know because we're sort of we're looking we're looking through the window and the answer is yeah it kind of is I'm not saying it's irrelevant but there's been a significant update to the story since Leviticus and his name is Jesus. And he's the one that Christians follow. To, let me be more specific about this. The covenant that is in the Old Testament is the main thing that is out of date. Now, okay, what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. This agreement goes both ways. 
And God, in the Old Testament, makes a covenant with his people. And the ceremonies in Leviticus are part of that covenant. But the covenant was, and I'm using the Bible's words here, straight from Hebrews chapter 8, the covenant was faulty. You go, hang on, did God make a mistake? Like, can God do that? (laughs) Um, Well, the covenant was perfectly good from his point of view, from his end of the deal, but from the human end, not so good. Have a look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. See, us human beings, we're never perfect for long. We might have moments where we get something exactly right, but that's not going to continue. We're going to stuff things up. And so no matter how hard the people tried, they were not able to stick with that agreement, that, that covenant with God 100%. So God's solution is to then give us a better covenant that is not reliant on our performance. So in the second part of verse 6, he says the new covenant is established on better promises. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, a book in the Old Testament that looked forward to the new covenant. And these are the God's words. And he quotes in verse 10. God says this, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the new covenant covenant moves away from physical things like tabernacles and arks and temples and stone tablets and these sort of things that we see in the Old Testament and it moves into people's minds and into people's hearts. It becomes more personal, I guess, in, in some ways, and less to do with ceremony, and less symbolic, actually, and a bit sort of more real, like you know, living it out in our lives. And so the reference, it's also a reference to the way the Holy Spirit works after Jesus. Because when you become a Christian, God gives you his Spirit to live inside you and to help you be in a relationship with him. So, and that, that didn't happen for everyone who believed in God before Jesus. So the aim of the covenant remains, right? Both covenants have the same aim, which is to have God at the centre of everything in our lives, for God to be at the heart of everything, but the new covenant is just better. (laughs) Um, And then in verse 12, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now God did already forgive sins before Jesus, and there's some ceremonies in Leviticus which show that. Um, But... The forgiveness that Jesus offers is better and is complete. This passage in chapter 8 finishes with a comment from the author. It says, By calling this covenant new, this is verse 13, by calling this covenant new, God has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So right there in the Bible, the Bible says it itself, that the old covenant is outdated. It's a bit like Windows 98 or newspapers, you know? They've lost their relevance. Newspapers, I know for some of you, you're hanging on, but they're they're disappearing. (laughs) Um, So, do we have to do the ceremonies that are written down in the book of Leviticus today? No, we don't. But we do need to keep living in a way that puts God at the heart of everything. And that involves actions. That involves us 
making decisions about the way we live and the things that we do in our life. The new covenant is different though in the sense that it's not written down as specifically as it was in the Old Testament. There's not as much detail there. and There's a bit more freedom in the way we work all that out. Now this begs a question, which I think is a very fair question, which is why read the Old Testament at all then? If it's outdated, if we've got Jesus, he's the one who completes everything, why bother reading the Old Testament? Let's, well, let's chuck it out. I mean, why, why commit six weeks of our church teaching calendar to everybody's least favourite book in the Bible? You know, bit of a waste of time. But again, the book of Hebrews is very helpful in answering this question and just putting these things in their proper place. So have a look at what it says in verse 5. It's talking about the Old Testament priests. And it says, They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And I think it's that idea of a shadow that is really helpful for us to understand. I'm going to reference Star Wars to explain it. So, this is Darth Vader, probably the main character of the Star Wars series, which I think is now eight movies, uh, with more to come. A very recognisable character, like the, the shape of the helmet and the big cape and so on. Um, he's, the, he's the big bad guy, you know, he's sort of the catalyst for a lot of the things that happen in the Star Wars movies. Now, when they were doing episode one, which was the story of Darth Vader when he was a boy and before he got all into the suit and everything, uh, this was a promotional poster that they put out. And it's a very clever use of the shadow of Darth Vader there. We see a boy looking like any other boy, but the shadow there is clearly showing us that the future, you know, that there's something in this boy's future that is worth taking note of. There is something going to happen later on that is going to be worth paying attention to. And if you know the series, and if you know the shape of Darth Vader, that image tells you a lot about who that boy is and what's going to happen. Now, this poster came out before we saw the movie and we realised Darth Vader, when he was a kid, was kind of annoying. Uh, but at the time, it was very significant. And then in the Rogue One movie, which just came out last year, they used Darth Vader's shadow again. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say he is in that movie. And the scene that he's in, this is the... Uh, this is the, uh, sh a little shot from the first scene. It's a little bit um, uh, dark, but hopefully you can see his shadow on the wall. And again, they do this. They know his shadow is so recognisable that before you actually see Darth Vader in the scene, you see his shadow and you know what's going on. You know that there's something about... You're going to see something significant later on in the scene. So the shadow is good, right? It, it tells us important things. And it points to something bigger and better in the future. And similarly, the old covenant was a shadow of the new covenant. It pointed to something greater coming into the future. And often mentioned that there was something great. You know, the Old Testament mentions often that there is something greater coming in the future. Now, I realise there's always a failure in any sort of illustration. And the failure here, the clearest failure, is that Darth Vader grew up to be a really bad dude and murdered hundreds and thousands of people. <laughs> so it does fall down there because the New Covenant is pointing to Jesus who didn't kill people and died for people. Uh, but you, you get the point. Like the shadow, uh, the old, old Covenant is a shadow. So we don't think of it like this. We don't go Old Covenant bad, New Covenant good. We say Old Covenant good, New Covenant better. It's an improvement. And it's better because of Jesus. So we should continue to read the Old Testament because it gives us a lot of background and insight into the shadow of Jesus' arrival on earth. 
The more we learn about that shadow, the better we will know Jesus himself, the more we'll appreciate the new covenant. Also, many of the things that were taught in the Old Testament were affirmed by Jesus. So by that I mean, he, uh, if they didn't involve sacrifice, then you know, uh, Jesus' sacrifice didn't sort of affect those parts of the Old Testament. But also, Jesus just taught that some of them were true and good and will continue to, to be relevant in our lives and that he was obedient to a lot of the teaching in the Old Testament. So for example, the Ten Commandments, which I mentioned earlier, uh, they're not outdated because Jesus didn't need to... Dot, there was no sacrifice required in those um, commandments and Jesus lived them out, taught that they were true, was obedient to them. They're still good and important for our lives today. All right, coming to land. What will we learn from the book of Leviticus in this series? Well, we will see the shadow of the new covenant and we'll try and point out these sort of connections as we go through the series. We'll see that good relationships were always a priority for God right from the start. It's not just a recent thing. That he always wanted to be at the heart of, the, of our lives. We'll see that as well as being responsible for ceremonies of forgiveness, the priests were also responsible for these other ceremonies about different parts of life, like public health and safety sort of stuff. You know, there's lots of ceremonies just about helping people to live together, live healthy lives, don't share your illnesses. You know, like I'm sure kid, parents with kids in daycare will appreciate the teaching on those sort of things. Um, you know, facilitating generosity and welcoming. And I think it's going to be interesting to think about the fact that as well as Jesus being the high priest of the ceremonies that involve sacrifice, he's also the high priest of those other ceremonies about general life, getting along with each other, being healthy. It's going to be really interesting to look at that. We'll learn a lot about our relationship with God, ourselves, other people, and the natural world around us. And because we live in the era of the new covenant, we're not required to be sort of literally obedient to what we read in Leviticus. But we are required to have habits and patterns in our lives that keep God at the centre. So as we look back through the Jesus window, we'll learn from people trying to do pretty much the same thing 3,000 years ago. But we'll do it with the benefit of all that Jesus has done since. Let me pray. God, thank you for caring about people. Thank you for making us a priority. We don't deserve that, but you do it anyway and we're very grateful for it. Thank you for the old covenant and the shadow that it gave your people in that time. And thank you for Jesus and the better new covenant which we now live in and enjoy. Amen.